Cable news, noisy, boring, out of touch. That's why Salem News Channel is different. We keep you in the know. Streaming 24-7 for free. Home to the greatest collection of conservative voices like Dennis Prager, Jay Sekulow, Mike Gallagher, and more. Salem News Channel is unfiltered and unapologetic. Watch anytime, on any screen, at snc.tv and local now, channel 525. Welcome back as we head into the third hour today. It is a delight to bring back to the show. He's been a guest several times, uh, and certainly every time he writes a book, which is often. It is a delight to welcome back John Cribb, C-R-I-B-B, for those of you that want to uh, look up his book, Brand Spankin' New, book on Abraham Lincoln, The Rail Splitter, a novel of Abraham Lincoln. This is his second Lincoln book. This takes us up to his presidency, uh, the Lincoln presidency, his uh, his uh, previous book uh, covered uh, Lincoln's presidency. That was Old Abe. And he just put this one out, The Rail Splitter, a novel of Abraham Lincoln. John Cribb, congrats and welcome back to the Airwaves of Phoenix. Hey, Seth. Uh, thanks. Thanks for having me on. I really appreciate it. Any time you write, I will have you on. You are an elegant and gifted writer and historian. And uh, you are a dear friend. So thank you for being with us and generous with your time. Well, thank you. Back, right back at you. I have so much. Thank you. I have so much to um, ask you about. And you cover it a bit at the front. And it's probably a question a lot of our audience has, too, which is when you write um, what you might call a historical fiction or novel, a historical novel, which is a little bit different, uh, maybe a great deal different, the reader Never maybe quite sure which part is completely accurate to history and which part might be novel, if you will. You do explain that up front and uh, in the book. I'd love for you to do it with the audience. Um, and, uh, and I have to tell you, as someone who reads a lot about Lincoln, uh, I, this, this looks like it's really just a history. I, it's a beautiful rendering of history. I, I don't see the novel in it, John. I don't mean that as a criticism. I mean that as a compliment. I hope you take it that way. It was yes, intended as such. Okay. Yeah, no, it is. All right. Help me out totally. of my little uh, my little hiccup there. No, you're absolutely right. Well, so, no, I do take it as a compliment, and I'm, I, that's exactly what I want. Um, yeah, so you're right. And that's, you know, the downside of historical fiction is exactly that. The, the, the big upside is it brings... Uh, characters to life in a way that nonfiction can't, and we all know that. Mm-hmm. Um, the downside is, as you say, the reader's left wondering, eh, did that actually happen? And, you know, historical novels and historical fiction, there's no set definition of it except that it's a, you know, something that takes place in the past. Mm-hmm. Not right. even, some people say more than 50 years, some will say more than 25, but, and, and on the one hand, you've got novels that are just simply set in the fa- past, but the Plots and characters pretty much invented. Think um, a tale of two cities. Yeah, you know, right, but, right. And on the other extreme, you have novels that really track more closely to the actual history. So think maybe um, uh, the Killer Angels. Okay. Or the Cain, the uh, the Mutiny on the Bounty. Okay. You know, there really was a Fletcher Christian and a Captain of Lie, and they the authors used the trial transcript to write mm-hmm, that, that mm-hmm. novel. So this these books lie more in that camp. Um, as you know, I spent many years researching them, yep. and um, so uh, you know, I, 
I had to leave a lot out because if you're covering somebody's whole life, which these novels pretty much do, you got to leave a whole lot out. And I had to condense some stuff and simplify some stuff. And, um, but I really dug deep into the primary source documents and tried to use things like letters and diaries and, you know, a lot of, used a lot of old books written by people who knew Lincoln and uh, wrote about their firsthand experiences and so tried to build all that directly into the novel. But now I, but I fill in the gaps and the details with my imagination. And well, I like, yeah, and you have this nice explanation, I hope not to butcher it, where you would have read in someone's diary that he looked with a certain expression on his face or maybe vice versa, and you would use that expression on his face at some yeah. moment. Right. You know what yeah, I'm talking about. Yeah, I took the, uh, I think that, um, yeah, and as a matter of fact, I think the um, example I've taken the author's note at the beginning is that I, I said where, where I say where I write that, that a crossword or look. That's what. That, that's yeah. right. That's right. It yeah, was from I'd his say, stepmother, I think. Yeah, when yeah. I say a crossword or look, it never uh, passed between Lincoln and his stepmother, yeah. Father Lincoln. That's because she. That's those are the exact words that she there. used in an interview that's with right. uh, to William Herndon after Lincoln was was gone. So a lot of the, the language uh, in the book is taken from the historical record. And and yeah. I got to say that's a lot that passes for history today that doesn't say it's fiction or novel. <laughs> yeah. It does not come from the historical record. That's exactly <laughs> right. That's exactly right. We can think yeah. of a four-digit example probably. Uh John John, that's the other thing though about Lincoln. You know, there are there are there are few people in history like him that are so in and of themselves damned interesting and damned u- darned unique and uh, their lives so full of, of varying passions and interests that you don't have to invent it to make it interesting in and of itself. Yeah. They're not, you don't say that about a lot of people. You can certainly say it about Lincoln. Right. That's exactly right. I mean, I, I, you know, I loved writing both these novels, and it was, to me, a very creative experience, but... Um, I didn't have to. I didn't. I didn't make. I didn't have to make up anything. The, the plot was there for me. And as you say, his life is. I mean, his life was really an adventure story. I mean, you the know, truth is uh, more. Yeah, the truth is yeah, more I mean, of an adventure than fiction. To paraphrase yeah, I mean, Mark. How Twain, many yeah. people know that as a young fellow, he twice, you know, built flatboats with buddies out of, uh, cut down trees, built flatboats, loaded them with frontier produce, and rafted just like Huck Finn all yeah. the way down the Mississippi River, New Orleans. And on the first of those trips, was attacked by a river pirate. Right. <laughs> Right. Fight him off, right. you know. I mean, it's just one one amazing kind of adventure after another. With and, and he knew how to slay and dress a hog, right? He did. He knew how to butcher a hog and did. Yeah, one of the many occupations. <laughs> one of the many had. things he could do. <laughs> what is it about Lincoln? We'll get into 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 some some uh, some of the important um, lessons for our time in a moment. But what is it about Lincoln that so captures the imagination? You call him our nation's best president. I can't argue with that at all. But what is it that is it that he was the first president to be assassinated, do you think? Or do you think it was because of the beauty of his prose on such an issue as equality and liberty? Um, was it his life story, a little of everything? There is something all, about Lincoln yeah. that there isn't about James Garfield, is yeah, what I'm trying yeah, to say. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's all of the above, but I do think uh, part of it, you know, generations of Americans have been inspired by that journey he made from the a log cabin of the White House, which was driven largely by his character. I mean, you know, he, he just 
developed in himself and contained this basket of virtues like, you know, hard work and perseverance and a burning desire to learn and, you know, that, that really are self-reliance, you know, the kind of traditional American virtues. Mm-hmm. And that generation of generation, up until now anyway, of Americans have admired and loved. I think that's part of it. I think also his life has has represented to Americans, I mean, in many ways it's represented the American dream. I mean, you know, he is kind of the epitome of someone who digs deep in that reservoir of God-given talents and potentials we all have in us, and to live life to its fullest extent and live a good life. And I, I, I mean, I don't mean just materially good, although Lincoln, as some people now realize, he was quite a very prosperous lawyer by the yes. time he ran for the presidency. That's He's right. done very well for himself. But by good life, I mean a morally good life. Uh-huh. And, you know, that's what the founders intended, was for this country to be a place where people could live in freedom to build for themselves good lives, materially good, but also morally good lives. That's really the American dream. And Lincoln has epitomized that, you know, for generations now for, for Americans. I hope he still does. Yeah, well, that's an interesting one. One of the virtues that's isolated or identified in here is um, the knowledge, the the learning. Um, What's the word I want? Autodidact? Is that right? Uh, Self-taught. The self. He 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 was not a formally educated man, but to read any of his speeches or writings, you would think he was a you know you would think he was a Nobel Prize winning philosophy professor or something. Yeah. No, it's the basic. You know, he once had to fill out a a kind of description of himself, and it had one of the blanks was education. He he wrote in defective. Right. (laughs) Right. Right. He had he had less than one year of. Schooling. That's right. Our life. That's right. Let me and let me you, take a quick commercial break. Yeah. Let me pick up on that question. I would be curious. You open it with his love of books. You open the rail splitter with his love of books, and an interaction with his dad over a spoiled book, a physically spo- despoiled book that he may have to cover the cost of that he borrowed. Did his parents see this in him? I'd love to pick up on that when we come back. Did his parents see in him something special, something different, something that would epitomize? Not only the American dream, but great success. John Cribb is our guest. His book, The Rail Splitter, a novel of Abraham Lincoln. You want this book, folks, and you want to come right back with us. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show. We are talking to John Cribb, C-R-I-B-B. He is the author of a brand spanking new book, The Rail Splitter, a novel of Abraham Lincoln. One of the virtues you uh, you pull out of Abraham Lincoln that he could teach us is, you know, teaching himself and and, uh, and knowledge, learning, self, uh, self-instruction. And you open with an, an interesting vignette, a really fun vignette, really, about him borrowing books. He could borrow books wherever he could, and one of them was ruined uh, physically, and his dad had a colloquy with him. Did his parents see in him something different and special, John? Uh, I think his stepmother, yes. His father, no. Right. And his, his yeah. natural mother, Nancy Hanks Lincoln, died when yeah. he was quite quite young. Mm-hmm. Um, and then his stepmother comes into his life, and is really a second mother. Um, his father, I think, you know, looked at this kid sitting around with books, sitting on tree stumps with books, and thought he was being lazy. Right. 
Uh, there's a big, strong guy, and he thought he should be out behind a plow. And to Tom Lincoln, his father, who was, didn't have a lot of education himself, um, that was just, you know, success lay in getting land, owning land, working land. That's the way it always mm-hmm. been. And uh, didn't realize really that the world was changing around him. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, so that said, he was a good father in some ways, I think. He, he was a strong father figure, a disciplinarian. He was a hard worker himself. And uh, apparently, according to his neighbors, was great at telling jokes and stories, and Abraham Lincoln inherited that from yeah. him. But yeah. the stepmother, uh, Sally Lincoln, Sarah J- Bush Johnson Lincoln, uh, her friends call her Sally, she, as, as we said a minute ago, she said our minds seem to move in the same channel. And again, even though she had very little education herself, she was basically illiterate. Mm-hmm. Um, she she realized that this young fellow had this burning desire to learn and that it could take him places. And she was the one, I think, who made way for him to be able to get hold of books and have a little, you know, have time to study and read them when his father maybe grumbled about it sometimes. His success in life either as an attorney, becoming a uh, member of the House of Representatives, um, and then ultimately, of course, uh, president. It wasn't easy. Um, there, were a, there were a lot of uh, falls along the way, a lot of defeats along the way on each of his successes. And even with this eagerness to learn, eagerness to persevere, and eagerness to, um, to self-improve, it wasn't lost on him. I mean, there was a fair amount of depression that moved through him, too, as well, wasn't there, John? Yeah, there was that famous melancholy yeah, side. Yeah, melancholy. His personality. I think there were probably, to my reading of his life anyway, there were really two times in his life where I think you could say maybe he was clinically depressed. Yeah, right. Where he was just non-functioning. Right. For for a while. And uh, they both involved women, yeah. <laughs> interestingly. Yeah. Uh, the first time what else is he, there to be depressed about? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, the first comes when he's <laughs> My producer's nodding. <laughs> Just, okay. <laughs> we got three of us agree. Yeah, we three. <laughs> okay. All right. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, the first comes when he's a young man in the 1830s, and he loses really his first uh, sweetheart, Ann Rutledge. And the second comes when his engagement to uh, Mary Todd falls apart. Yeah. Um, I think he learns after that, to really control his emotions enough to not go into tailspins like that. But for the rest of his life, he's got that melancholy side. He famously, one minute, could be joking and laughing yeah. and you know telling stories, and the next minute slip into a gloom and just kind of want to be off to himself as the somber you know, kind of Lincoln. Um, so there was, there was always that his whole life. His, his, his law partner, William Herndon, said that he, he dripped melancholy. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, the way he described it. Yeah, and you can see it in his face. It must, you know, you can see it in his face. But you have this interesting thing too, and I don't remember if it's in the book or something you wrote ancillary to the book, John. I, I read everything you write, I just, so I sometimes conflate the uh, the source um, that, in which you put it. But you you say somewhere that you know this image we have of him is kind of a lanky, maybe somewhat depressed. Um, just the picture of the five dollar bill that's that's the famous one uh the most mm-hmm. famous i suppose um and the one that used to appear on school walls but this was a very uh, you referenced it in the previous segment this was a very strong man too this was a strapping lad wasn't it oh yeah he was you know and he he grew up playing frontier contests and games like who could run the fastest and jump farthest and throw one of those big heavy malls right no with, right. with the farthest and, and he won a lot of those games y- yeah. and that was a 
important part of his early success uh, really kind of helped him get to you know into politics for example um, and then his whole life he you know he was you know he used to show off a little bit by taking an, an axe yep. and uh, taking his arm and holding his arm you know stiff and swinging that axe up so that you know the axe and his arm were one long line and yeah. hold it you know horizontal to the ground the feat of strength that not many people could do and he was doing that well into his presidency yeah uh, you know so, yeah, strong guy. The thing I would like to pursue with you for a little bit, John, if I can, um, and in, in in the rail splitter, we get that. In your previous book on him, we got the culmination of it. But in, in the rail splitter, we get this dedication, um, this this passion for for equality and tying it to freedom and liberty yeah. Yeah. uh this 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 passion for tying it not only to each tying those concepts not only to each other but really to vindicating if you will the american project the 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 american founding and and ideally uh, the perpetuation of our insti- of america he had the speech the perpetuation of our institutions what what do you what do you think motivated him so strongly to take up that issue of equality so strong human equality so strongly as he did and maybe it's even a longer conversation why is there today such an animus against him or such an attempt to write that out of his biography yeah great question um to the first part what motivated him i think it was you know Go back to the frontier. Yep. Uh, he grows up with the books he can get his hands on, like the you know biography of George Washington, um, or at least two that we know. He yeah, right. He wanted one right after the other. Yeah. Um, you know, he, and he read Jefferson, and he was a big admirer of Franklin. You know, he soaks up those principles, founding principles of, of liberty and equality through the, the books he can get to hold on. But also, he just kind of breathed it in uh, through the atmosphere of, of out there on the frontier. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I just uh, a bit of a jump, just that I'm reminded suddenly of Ronald Reagan's farewell address when yeah. he mentions that it was, it was just in the air. Patriotism yeah. was in the it air. It was just in the but, air. But you know, out on the frontier, uh, where he grew up, life was hard. There's no doubt about it, and you you, you probably didn't didn't have a lot. But out there on the frontier. People, number one, were pretty much, you know, kind of equal in station life, and then they were free to make their way as best they could in life. And he and, could see too. I nowhere have I really seen this written, but I have a feeling that yes, you put your finger on it. That yes, the people were all kind of equal in their own stations, but also you spend a lot of time with animals on the frontier. And you see the difference between people and animals. And I yeah. and something about that, I think, spoke to you hear the music. Let me take the quick yeah. commercial break. We'll pick up on this point when we come right back. He's John Cribb. He is the author of The Rail Splitter, a novel of Abraham Lincoln. John and I will be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show. John Cribb is our guest. His book about Abraham Lincoln just out, The Rail Splitter. John, I think also, too, one would have to say about Lincoln's dedication to the fight for equality, I, though, though not a 
maybe a regular churchgoer, very, very familiar with the Bible and very, very easy in quoting and drawing lessons from the Bible and 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 what we learn about human nature and man and God from the Bible. That's very evident, isn't it? Absolutely. And that was, you know, of course, you know, as you know, any pioneer family is going to have a book in the cabin. Yeah. Most likely the Bible that he did have a Bible that he grew up with. And, um, yeah, I think he knew the Bible as well or better than any president yeah, we've ever had. And probably. spent time with it. And probably went to life. church less than any among. Well, I don't know. I think he he went to church, I think, more than people realized. He liked going to church. Okay. And, you know, his language, a lot of it comes from the Bible and the sermons he heard, and he was friends with uh, James Smith, the pastor. Yes. Uh, First Presbyterian. And yes. Springfield, and then uh, Reverend Gurley. Yes, uh, the, I overstated it. You're absolutely yeah. right. But but he but you were right that he never joined a church okay. in his entire life, and he was never baptized. Yeah. Um, so he had you know he was there was a discomfort there with organized religion, and I think it had to do with the dogma, the strict dogma of churches in those days. He was just uncomfortable with. But yeah, that 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 faith I think informed him. There's no doubt about it that his his reading of the Bible informed his his views on equality and liberty, because, you know, he, you read the Bible, you realize that every every individual has dignity in the eyes of God. And, you know, that's a lesson that I think sank in very deeply. Yeah, I think so. You get this, uh, certainly leading up, and you cover this well in your book, certainly leading up to the Lincoln-Douglas debates, but you get this very much in the Lincoln-Douglas debates, yeah. in his responses to uh, Judge Douglas. Um the Lincoln-Douglas debates, let's talk about those for, for just a moment. Uh, that, too, was a unique thing. Um, we still talk, I mean, people talk about Lincoln-Douglas debate style. It's nothing like them. Uh, Professor Randall said, swinging up and down and back and forth across Illinois, making the Welkin ring and getting, setting the priors on, prairies on fire is what Lincoln and Douglas did. They yeah. must have been quite a thing. Yeah, I mean, the farmers and shopkeepers flocked by the thousands, literally by the thousands. Two long speeches. They weren't debates. They were long speeches. I mean, they were yeah. debates, but <laughs> they were long. Three, they were three hours, although, I, you know, I understand that that uh, they were raucous affairs. I mean, yeah. People weren't just sitting there silently listening. It was kind of part circus, part sporting think event, so, part. I think some people debate. brought a little Kentucky bourbon with uh -huh, them. Uh -huh. And they would yell. The, the crowd would yell yeah, yeah. at them. And, yeah. <laughs> it is funny. It is true. When you look up the official transcripts of them, you see uh, brackets of roars of laughter and applause. Yeah. yeah, right. Yeah. But, yeah, but, you know, those debates, and, and I, I, I love that, that passage from the, the final one, the seventh debate in yeah. Alton, where he, he says this is the real issue. You know, right and wrong, the difference matter. between right and wrong, right? Yeah. yeah. This, is, this is the eternal struggle between mm -hmm. these two principles that will... He says, well, it'll continue when these poor tongues of Judge Doug Douglas and myself will be silent, you know, between right and wrong and, and the principles between tyranny and, uh, and, and freedom. The common right of humanity versus mm -hmm. the divine right yeah, of kings, right? beautiful language. But, you know, Lincoln, when he says that, I mean, I, 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 one thing that I think that we're just, we forget, or we, I just because it hadn't been taught, and, and, or it's been maybe deliberately obscured, when Lincoln said that, you know, he knew full well that throughout history, the vast majority of people who had ever lived on this earth had lived without much freedom. Yeah, that's right. Thumbs of kings or emperors or tyrants. Many of them had lived in bondage. I, I, by one estimate, I've read that 
around the year 1800, uh, three-quarters of the world's population was living in bondage of some kind. Yeah, he thought what we had was, yes, was very special and unique. Um, Absolutely, and the world had been waiting for... Exactly, exactly right. I had only come to learn recently to my own deficit. This was a short segment. We have a longer one coming up, so I'm going to go to break on this. But to my own deficit... I have only come to learn recently that the last best hope of Earth, that phrase of his, he actually got from Jefferson's first inaugural. He added the word last, but this this was in his mind for a long time. He thought that there, the United States was not just a place among the nations. He, he truly did think it was a beacon, a pharos, a light unto the nations. Uh, John Cribb is our guest. He and I will be right back. He is the author of the brand new book on Abraham Lincoln, The Rail Splitter. And it's it's a great read, and i got to tell you, the chapters are broken up so nicely. It's not a very hard read. Uh, I meant that as a compliment, too. John and I will be right back. John Cribb is our guest. His brand new book, The Rail Splitter, a novel of Abraham Lincoln. Uh, well, an interesting song to come into, simply the best Tina Turner, because, John, you— you refer to Abraham Lincoln as the best president. I would do the same. Um, how do you get there, a nice South Carolina boy? Yeah, the cradle of secession. Yeah, yeah. I, you know what? I got there from uh, from a very young age. My mother uh, doing what you know parents, I guess, should are supposed to do: sitting on the couch with me and my brother and sister. And we were very young, you know, even before we could read ourselves and reading all kinds of stories to us, and including stories of Abraham Lincoln, including one book I remember vividly that came out of a library called Abe Lincoln, Frontier Boy oh, by yeah. Augusta Stevens. Was that part of that old childhood of famous American box? Yeah, series? yeah. It's a great series. And, um, you know, those, those stories of him growing up on the frontier just grabbed me early on. And, and, and even though, you know, I'm from South Carolina and had folks on both sides of my family, the family tree that fought for the South, uh, there was just, you know, when I was growing up, all around me a great reverence for Lincoln. And still is. I think there's more reverence for Lincoln in, in the South maybe than any other I, the, Well, you, you read my mind. You read my mind, because that's where I wanted to go, that other part of that question. What is this weird, historians will know the phrase, the lost cause narrative, I suppose, maybe, but what is this weird effort to read decency and equality and freedom and liberation of slavery out of Abraham Lincoln's biography. Is it part and parcel of a larger project to just make everything about America suck and be evil? Um, Because no one stands, I mean, to take him down would be, you know, like trying to take Andre the Giant down. Yeah. And so they have to take him down. Okay. They have to. They they have to. And, And Lincoln, of course, you know, was a was a great defender of the founders. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and lo- you know, loved the founders, admired them. He called them Iron Men. Yeah, um, and uh, said that you know uh, to prevail that, against them was to prevail against the gates of hell. In one of his speeches, yeah. right? Maybe that same yeah. speech is at the Lyceum. I'm thinking of. Yeah, yeah. I think it's yeah. Yeah, and you know, he said that we are all uh, that speech he gave in um, 1858 in Chicago. Right. That we're all we're all descendants of the of the founders because of the 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 principles they bequeathed to us, as if we are the blood of the blood and the flesh. They gave the us that electric cord, right? Yeah, exactly. exactly. That's the electric cord speech, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And so I think it's part and parcel of the uh, 
the uh, effort to convince, if you can convince Americans that the whole country was rotten from the beginning, then it's a lot easier to convince them that we need radical change. And Lincoln, you know, so you got to take Lincoln down if that's your, if that's your aim. That's a really good point. I guess I hadn't thought of it in that way. If you're going to – so it's interesting. The left, whatever you want to call it, the anti-American movement in America, the revisionist historical movement in America, they're not starting uh, on the margins. They're not starting on the edges. They're going right to the right to the, right to the benchmark. And I, I know they even you, tried uh, to rename a school, right? Yes, yeah, and they've, yeah, yeah. And I know you, uh, you know, touched on that. Uh, what is it? The Proud Family is the name of the. Uh, oh the yeah, the Disney the, thing. Yeah, that discuss. Yeah, yeah, sorry, it's it's revolting. Yeah, it is. It's unbelievable. You saw? Have you seen that production? Yes. It's a few. It's yeah. it's sickening, isn't it? It is, and not only it's sickening only, what they're doing to kids. Really, I mean, it's real, a, it is. that's the it thing is. that really bothers me the most. Why but, would you? Why would you take this? True. In a world without a lot of heroes, he is one, and yeah. you're just destroying him for yeah, these you're kids. Yeah, you take him down. Right. The only I could say the only thing about it, maybe the silver lining is just so sickening that maybe it's gone too far, and well, maybe you know, the main reaction from people is going to be, uh, uh-uh, no, maybe this is wrong. But I don't. Yeah. Well, it comes with the interesting news that. Disney announced um, that they are laying off thousands of employees uh, this month uh, and cutting about five billion bucks due to loss of subscription. Yeah. So maybe, maybe. Yeah. I have a good friend that lives in the D.C. area who's a great movie aficionado and has been a lifelong uh, fan of Disney and texted me there night and he said, I just wish they would close the whole place (laughs) Yeah, and 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 the dramatic irony of this being an institution that was built to teach kids fairy tales and heroism, right? I mean, that's the thing, and you have one in a real life hero that they're just that they're just destroying. But yeah, I think your explanation is right. If you are going to go after the founders, go after their lawyer. He was their lawyer. That that I, I don't think I've ever said that before, and maybe I've read it somewhere, but I can't remember if I... I haven't heard that before. It's a good yeah, line. I've never yeah. heard it either. I, yeah, he was their advocate, Excellent. but you brought me to it, John. He was their attorney. He was their, I don't know, their Clarence Darrow or whatever. He was their vindicator in the court of public opinion. He made He made their case maybe in some respects better than they made it themselves. And maybe exactly. the left gets that better than we do. Maybe. No, that's right. And he, you know, he called them pillars of the temple of right. liberty. Right, right. And uh, he he knew that when, as they passed away, you know, again, he he said in the Young Man's Lyceum speech, right. he said that, you know, you have to be replaced with something. And he said those new pillars must be, he said, a general intelligence, now morality right. and reverence. Right, passion won't do it anymore, right? Right. right. So, you know, that's what he's speaking there, general intelligence, he meant education. Yeah. So he's speaking about civic education yeah. and patriotism, instilling a love of a country in every generation. Mm-hmm. And so when you have things like that episode of the Proud Family, I mean, that's, that's trying to break the link, you know, because yeah. Lincoln knew that if you don't pass that spirit of 1776 along to each generation, that, that sense that this is a great country and what, what, remark, what a remarkable step forward in history this, this country's been. If you don't pass that along, then, you know, 
then you lose your country. Yeah, well, that's right. And and you you were referencing Reagan's farewell address and his warning that we need to teach this. And you just said it again, generation to generation. It's been about a generation since Reagan said that, and uh, literally uh, just a couple years beyond a generation. And look at where we are. Look how right he was. Yeah, but yeah, yeah. That 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 electric cord has. I don't know if it's been completely cut. But, boy, they have really frayed it, haven't they? That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, John, you have been so generous with, of course, your scholarship, but also your time and your friendship. And what a great book. Thanks for spending this hour with us. Uh, The Rail Splitter is the book, folks. And uh, if you want things right about this country and you want to read about someone who uh, helped make so much of us right, this is the book you want, The Rail Splitter, a novel of Abraham Lincoln by John Cribb. John, bless you, and uh, congratulations, and thank you. Thanks so much, Seth. Thank you. You betcha. I'm Seth, and I'll be right back with a closing thought. Many of you have heard me talk about why refi for quite some time now. If you still have questions about what an investment uh, with them can be like and do for you, they would love you to call them so they can put you in touch with any number of their many satisfied customers from the Phoenix area who have invested with them and done very well. Their number is 888-Y-REFI-34, 888-the letter Y, R-E-F-Y-34. And think about your IRA. If you want it to be earning strong fixed interest rates and not be dependent on the stock market or Joe Biden's economy, think about this. Did you know you can invest with Y-Refi through an IRA or other qualified funds and you can keep your investment, including the high fixed interest rates you earn, tax deferred? That's right. Your money can stay in your IRA and you don't have to pay taxes on the income you earn. 888-Y-Refi-34 or check them out at investyrefi.com. I do love uh, how John closes uh, his book on Lincoln uh, or comes close to closing his book on Lincoln with that last debate, that last Lincoln-Douglas debate. It wasn't for the presidency. Sometimes people think that the Lincoln-Douglas debates of 1858 were actually about a Senate race that he lost. And uh, in his closing um, argument, Lincoln says uh, morality is the nub of the issue. This is the real issue. This is the issue that will continue in this country when these poor tongues of Judge Douglas and myself shall be silent. It is the eternal struggle between these two principles, right and wrong, throughout the world. They are the two principles that have stood face to face from the beginning of time and will ever continue to struggle. The one is the common right of humanity and the other the divine right of kings. It is the same principle in whatever shape it develops itself. It is the same spirit that says you work and toil and earn bread and I'll eat it. No matter in what shape it comes, whether from the mouth of a king who seeks to bestride the people of his own nation and live by the fruit of their labor, or from one race of men as an apology for enslaving another race, it is the same tyrannical principle. People forget that. Um, It's okay to talk about right and wrong. And in fact, the moment we stop is the moment tyranny enters. Right and wrong are the principles upon which this country was founded and then had a great contest over civil uh, liberties and civil rights and humanity, really. Civil war. And I believe we're at that cusp closer and closer every day at that cusp. And look who's pushing us there those who speak the loudest about the nature of our divided house, 
They're the ones pushing us there, those who decry it the loudest. The more he spoke of his honor, the quicker we counted our spoons. Until tomorrow, God bless you all. I'm Seth Liebson, and class is dismissed.